Hello and good evening, church, and those online, great to see you. My name is Paul, I haven't met you. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, a life lived in total surrender to God. Imagine if you always, always cared for others, served others, loved others, forgave others. Uh, Imagine a life uh, where your heart is full of compassion and kindness for all those around you. Uh, Imagine walking through creation and just appreciating how glorious this is and how majestic God is. Imagine days, moments just spent in solitude or in silence, just meeting with your God. It's a wonderful way to live, isn't it? It's the best way to live. It's called a life of worship. It's called a life which is dedicated to God, to his glory, to his honor, for his worth. And it's the life that God invites you to be part of. And we sing about it in one of my favorite hymns. It goes, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Here I am, all of me. Take my life, is all for thee. Beautiful words, aren't they? Lord, I just want my whole life to be dedicated, consecrated, surrendered to you. They're beautiful words. But the reality is they're really hard to do. Easy to sing, hard to do. Now here I am, all of me. Here I am, Lord, here's my, here's my family and my friendships and my fitness. Here's my tongue and my time and my talents. Uh, here's my attitudes and my emotions. Here's my hobbies. Here's my health. Here's my hurts. Here's my money. Here's my marriage. Here I am. Every part of my life, God, I want it to be dedicated, consecrated, honoring to you. That is hard to do, isn't it? It's what the Bible calls true and proper worship. It's that phrase that comes in verse 1. Look at it with me. This is your true and your proper worship. Uh, The word there for true is the word authentic. And it means genuine. It's genuine. It's not fake. And the word for proper is actually spiritually informed. So it's directed by God, and it's for God's glory. Now, this is my genuine, true, spiritually informed, God-directed worship. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's moments where you walk into a, a shop and you, you hand over a $100 bill, and that teenager behind the counter sort of looks at it and holds it up and rubs it between their fingers, thinking, is this genuine or is this fake? That's the challenge in this passage. Is your life of worship, is it genuine or is it all pretend? Is it spiritually informed or is it a bit worldly? This is your true and your proper worship, says Paul. He's asking, are you really living a life which is lived as a son or daughter of a heavenly father? Are you living as co-heirs of Christ? Are you living as someone filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit? Is he true and proper worship? 
It is not just about that experience here at 7 p.m. where you gather with God's people and you're praising God in songs. You might raise your hand. You might experience these deep emotions. That is worship, but it's not just worship. Worship is not when you sit under a good sermon and you fill your head with information, although that is worship. Let's be, let's be real here. When we gather at 7 p.m., we're gathering to worship. But this is not the only place that we worship, is it? Now, for the last 12 months, we've heard a lot about worship from the government. Every single week, the masks must be worn in places of worship, as though this is the only place that we worship in the week. That's not what the Bible says. Worship is every moment of every day, every decision that you make that's dedicated to God and honoring to God. And it's such a joy and such a privilege to live that way. It's the best way to live. Here's my week. Mondays, I often wake up grumpy, emotionally drained after a busy Sunday. But that moment where I make that decision not to grumble but to, to, to express my gratitude and my thankfulness to God, saying, God, what a privilege of pastoring a church. That's a moment of worship. Uh, Tuesdays, back-to-back meetings all day, endless meetings. My to-do list gets bigger and bigger. But if those meetings are conducted in a godly way, and I speak kindly to people, and I listen well to people, that's a moment of worship. Uh, there's moments where you're at the pub with your unbelieving friends and, and the conversation becomes a bit worldly and a bit smutty. That decision not to join in the conversation, to guard your tongue, to honour God, that's a moment of worship. Uh, Thursdays, uh, I'm pulled in all these kind of directions, a sermon to write and you know, uh, kids to get to sport and people to pastor. Uh, but when I, I don't resent that, when I, when I say, thank you, Lord, I can serve others, love my wife, love my kids, pastor those people, that's a moment of worship. Uh, when I FaceTime my mum in the UK at midnight, because she's still grieving in lockdown in the UK, and I spend half an hour listening, that's a moment of worship. Uh, when I sit with somebody who is sad, hurting, in pain, and they're, they're crying, and all I do is sit in silence and listen, that's a moment of worship. When I meet someone in the street who's hurt me or offended me, that decision to, to, to pursue peace and not be bitter and to forgive and to love, that's a moment of worship. My point is this. Every moment of every day, you've got a choice to make. Will you worship God in this moment? Will you glorify him? Will you surrender to him in this moment? That's our theme tonight, true and proper worship. We're in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and these two verses are like the the turning point in the book of Romans. Therefore, he says, verse 1, therefore, he's saying, because of everything I've already said in chapters 1 to 11. So these chapters we're going to study, chapters 12 to 16, are like the, the so what, the impact, the application This is how all the the theological stuff of chapters 1 to 11 is going to shape the way that you live. Because I hope you know that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus is deeply theological. And you must wrestle with it and plumb the depths of election and justification and sanctification and glorification and assurance. You must do the hard work there. But belief always impacts behavior. Your creeds always change your conduct. So worship is never just 
filling your head with intellectual theological truths. Worship is about a radically transformed life. Therefore, he said, I plead with you, I urge you, I exhort you, please worship God with everything that you are. So firstly, true and proper worship, it is, it is motivated by God's mercy, motivated by God's mercy. See, there's five words, in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy. This is your motivation. This is your, it springs from God's mercy. You know, when someone asks you to do something you don't want to do, I'm sure you've all faced that. But if the person asking you to do it, if you trust them, if you know that they love you, if they know that they care for you and they want the best for you, then you do it because you trust them. That's what God is saying to us in these verses, in view of God's mercy. Uh, literally, it's the, the plural there, God's mercies. He's saying, because of all the ways, the many and varied ways you have experienced the mercy of God, that's your motivation all the ways God has been kind and tender-hearted and compassionate to you. And you've got 11 chapters of that, verse chapters 1 to 11. So please go home and read Romans 1 to 11, and you'll see the manifold mercies of God. But let me just very briefly walk through those chapters through my life, the life of Paul Dale. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Although I knew God, I didn't glorify him as God. Now, for 20 years of my life, I knew God existed, but I chose to ignore him, but God was merciful to me. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was true of me. I'd lied, I'd lusted, I was selfish, I was proud, I was arrogant, I was a wretched sinner. But, Romans 3, verse 23, I've been justified freely by his grace. That's amazing. That God saw me in my sin and he declared me right with him, not guilty in his sight because of the blood of Jesus. Romans 3 verse 24, I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I've been set free. I've been bought back at the most costly price. That was the blood of his son. That was the mercy of God in my life. At Romans 5, we just had it read. I have peace with God. I have access to God. I have a friendship with God because of Jesus. He holds no animosity towards me. That's incredible. That's the mercy of God. Romans 6, I love Romans 6. It says, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness. I've been set free from the power of sin in my life. I hope you believe that. When you come to Christ, the penalty of your sin has been paid for by Jesus. But more than that, when you come to Christ, uh, the, the sin has no power over you. You do have the power to say no to sin and yes to God because you've got the Spirit of God living in you, the Spirit who equips you and empowers you to live a godly life. That's the mercy of God. Now, chapter 7, uh, great verses when Paul says, that the things that I don't want to do I keep on doing and the things I do want to do I, I don't do. What a wretched man I am. I feel that all the time. The good things I don't do, the bad things I do do. But thanks be to God who gives me the victory. That's the mercy of God. Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to believe that. You are not condemned. You are loved. You are cherished. Romans 8 again, that by the Spirit of God you can cry, Abba, Father. 
You can approach God as a father. Now, to be honest, I, I really, really struggled to accept that. Uh, growing up, I, I had a really difficult or non-existent relationship, really, with my earthly father. And so when God told me that I could approach him as a father who was always there and always cares and always loving and was always good, I had to believe that. That was the mercy of God. And Romans 8, again, says that God works for all things for those good for those who love him. That is true. And Romans 8 again says that nothing can separate from his love in Christ Jesus. All that is the mercy of God. What I'm trying to say, friends, is that if you have understood how merciful and gracious and kind God has been to you in Jesus, can you say, I'm justified, I'm redeemed, I'm loved, I'm cherished, I'm a child of God, I've got the spirit of God, and all that is because of his mercy. Now, if you're going to live a life of worship, if you're going to live a life dedicated and surrendered to God, your motivation has to be right. See, if you don't get the motivation right, you'll hear the next eight weeks of Romans chapters 12 to 16, and every week you'll either leave here feeling guilty, feeling overwhelmed, feeling weighed down of all these things you have to do, the way to live, or you'll feel proud and arrogant, thinking, hey, I'm pretty good. But because of the mercy of God, that's your motivation. It springs from that. You just get to live this way out of gratitude and thankfulness. And I believe there are people here tonight who actually need to go home and just meditate again and marvel again at how merciful God has been to you. And then you'll start to live a life of worship. So it's motivated by, by God's mercy. Number two, it's marked by, by total surrender. Marked by total surrender. We're about to sing, uh, Here I Stand, High in Surrender. And what we're saying there is that, God, don't just take my heart, take my body, take my mind, take my soul, take everything about me, God, because it's all for you. Look at our verse, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, Christian brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, flowing out of God's mercy, here it is, offer, the word there is surrender, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When he talks about bodies there in verse 1, he's not talking about your looks He's talking about your conduct, your behavior. He doesn't care whether you're overweight or underweight or whether your body is aching or whether you're wrinkled or you're awkward. It's not about your body. It's about your behavior. Offer your bodily behavior as a living sacrifice. And, and the language there is from the Old Testament temple. Do you remember how in the Old Testament uh, the priest would take an animal and this poor animal, this animal sacrifice would be kind of limply and sort of unwittingly laid across the shoulder of the, of the priest and carried to the temple and slaughtered in the temple and the blood of the animal sacrifice would earn your forgiveness. Now, we don't bring an animal because Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice. He sacrificed him, his blood so that you could be certain that every sin, past, present, and future, is all forgiven. So what does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? He's saying, unlike that animal who's offered sort of unwillingly 
that you wittingly and eagerly and joyfully just hand over your life to God. You're called to be a sacrifice, to live a life of sacrifice. It's saying, here I am. Every part of me, God, I want to dedicate it to you in response, in gratitude for your forgiveness. It's been said that the problem with a, a living sacrifice is that it can make the choice to walk off the altar. A dead sacrifice has no choice. It's dead. It can't go anywhere. But a living sacrifice, you're tempted. You're tempted to wander off the altar of God and go back to the ways of the world. And Paul is saying, no. Make sure that every part of you is offered to God, holy. See that word, holy? Set apart, pure, without blemish. And pleasing, that, that word there is the, the fragrant offering from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, pleasing in God's sight, acceptable. That is worship. Worship is your whole life, your attitudes, your actions, your emotions saying, it's all for you, God. Nadia Moody said this, I love this quote. He says, let God have your whole life. Let God have your whole life because God can do more with it than you possibly could. So good. Just hand over your life to God and see what he can do in and through you. Hold nothing back from him. Give everything willingly to him. So I thought at this moment in our, our sermon, I'm going to stop. In the middle of the sermon, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for each of us here that our whole lives might be dedicated to him. So join me in prayer. Lord, we ask you to take our lips. May we not be gossips or slanderers or spreading poison, but may our lips speak truth, praise, build people up and spread your gospel. Lord, take our tongues, get rid of bitterness and cursing, and Lord, replace that with words of healing and words of comfort. Lord, take our hands, these fallen hands of ours. May they be used to offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us. Use our hands to do mundane tasks, unseen by many, but good for others and glorifying to you. Lord, take our arms. May our arms be used to wrap around those who are hurting, feeling unloved, distressed or grieving. Lord, take our feet. May we walk in the ways of our Savior. I pray, Lord God, you would, you would help us to go to places that we wouldn't choose to go to and go to people that we wouldn't choose to go to. Lord, take our ears. Give us ears to hear. Ears to hear your voice. Ears attentive to your spirit is to listen to those in our world who are most in need. And Lord, take our eyes. Lord, may we look to you humbly. May we see the world around us, see those in need. Lord, protect our eyes from jealousy, from greed, from lust. Lord, take all of us. May our whole lives be consecrated and surrendered to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You begin to get it?
It's really quite simple. You love God so much, you just want to live for him. And it begins here in your mind. See that verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The word there is actually transfigured. It's the same word used for the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be transformed by, by the renewing of your mind. So he starts with the negative. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. And the word for, for conform, it's literally molded. Don't be shaped by the world around you. It's a bit like a, a cake tin. You know, you put your, your batter into a cake tin and the shape of the tin shapes the, the cake. It's a bit like a, a jelly mold. The shape of the mold determines the, the shape of your jelly. He says, well, you live in a world, but please don't let the world shape you. Be in the world, but not of the world. Please don't conform to the way the, way the world thinks or the way the world speaks. Non-conformity. Non-conformity has always been a mark of God's people. Leviticus 18, you must not do as they do in Egypt. Do not follow their practices. Matthew 6, do not be like them. Romans 12, don't conform to the prevailing culture, he's saying. Now, I hope you know that that we're all shaped by our culture. It's this drip, 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 drip effect. Now, I've been here in Australia for almost, almost 20 years. When I arrived in Australia 20 years ago, I have to be really honest, I thought Australians were all a bit weird. Like, the way you dress is a bit weird. Your accents are weird. The way that you do your banking is weird. The way you do the post office is weird. Supermarkets are weird. The fact that you don't get English sarcastic humour is weird. This whole tall poppy syndrome is weird. And most Australians are terrible drivers. You know, it's just weird. But do you know what? 20 years later, it's not weird anymore. It's just normal for me now. Because after 20 years here, I've just assimilated Dress, accents, supermarkets, post office, banking, even driving. I've just conformed. And my point is this. As we live in this world, please be alert. And please see this world is weird. This world is not the way that God wants us to live. Our world says things like, pursue retaliation. Fight for your rights. Our world says you must think like this and have this ethical viewpoint. The world says you should think differently about Sundays or education or relationships. That is not the way of God. And my, my, my struggle is, I think, over the last 30 years, Christians have tried so hard to fit into the world that we now think like the world and talk like the world and dress like the world and work like the world and play like the world because we've just conformed to the pattern of this world. Now look what Paul says. Do not conform. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts here in the mind. He's not talking about more intellect. He's not talking about education. It's about a mindset Let your mind be shaped by God, he's saying. And what I love in Romans is back in chapter 6, in case you didn't know this, back in chapter 6, he says, when you come to Christ, he doesn't just justify you and redeem you, he actually gives you a new mind. 
a mind that is led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And so he's not asking you to try harder and harder and harder to think differently. He's saying you've got the right mind, just allow the Spirit of God to shape your thinking. So again, let me ask you, what would you feed your mind with? What do you watch on TV? What do you read online? What do you read in a newspaper? Who do you talk to? Who shapes your thinking? Is it the Word of God or is it the world around you? I love Oswald Chambers' quote. He says, there's only one thing God wants of you, and that is unconditional surrender. And I'm actually really excited. I'm, I'm really quite excited by what God might do in our church if all of us lived these lives of total surrender to him. Just imagine how glorious that would be. So true and proper worship. Motivated by mercy, marked by surrender, and very briefly, it results in spiritual discernment. See that verse, verse 2? Then. Then. So once you've marveled at mercy, and once you've surrendered everything to God, then. Then, he says, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word for test there is, is that you might know Know what God wants from you. Know what God wants for you. And the word for approve is kind of like you delight in it, you desire it. He's saying, see, when you marvel at mercy and you surrender everything to God, you start to think like God and act like God. You start to love God's ways. Because according to verse 2, God's ways are good and they're pleasing and they are perfect. Let me give you a couple of examples. How do you measure success in your life? What does it mean for you to be successful? I see, the world would say to be successful means to have academic achievements, have financial status, to be popular, to be a somebody. But God's word says no, to be successful in life is to be a humble servant of Jesus, loving others, serving your God, and hearing on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's to be successful. That's the way of, way of God. It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. Now, how do you measure happiness? Happiness, according to the world, is about relationships, perfect relationships, lots of possessions, perfect holiday, perfect health. But the Bible says happiness is actually about being content and secure in God. That's God's good, pleasing, perfect will. How do you respond to hurts? The world says retaliate, fight. And God says, forgive, get rid of bitterness and pursue harmony. That's God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I don't know about you, I'd rather live God's way than the world's way. Because that's the best way to live. It's not just imagining a world where you can walk through creation marveling at God. Not just imagining a world where you love others, serve others, and care for others. Not just imagining a world where you sit in silence and solitude. You get to do it. You can do it tomorrow and the next day and every day. And all it requires of you is to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee.